stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all the men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is even capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live, audio version for thee in this eternal now and in this red pill cafeteria. Ready to learn the truth about the moon and our alien overlords? Always a hunk a hunk of burning gnosis when Jason Reza Giorgiani visits the virtual Alexandria. During this particular visit, he discussed his new book, Artemis Unveiled. What is the truth about the moon? What secrets does this celestial object house? And how does it affect us monkeys down on Earth? Get ready to find out and get ready to gain so many new revelations from Jason, including ancient goddesses and conniving extraterrestrials. Please support if you find any value in the content. The Gnostic revelation is more important than ever, and I can't do it without you. The audience continues to grow, and at least for now, finances are somewhat there when it comes to covering overhead. I am very grateful for those of you who come through every week. We're getting there. It's not hard to contribute. For example, you can simply pledge a few dollars a month on my Patreon. One-time donations are also really appreciated. It really helps, and I can use all the help, as we all do. For subs, consider an upgrade like Finding Hermes, where we meet twice a month for exclusive presentations and a lively Q&A. And we will be rolling out some new features and rewards later this month. More mind-expanding, reality-dispanding content for thee in several formats. The Gnostic Revolution continues in this Philip K. Dick world, Gnostic times, and Age of Hermes. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, video game, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatever. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionals. And don't forget, I do have an Amazon wish list and a fantastic merch store. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live and let us see the whole of the moon.
first there was a dream, now there is reality. Here, in the untainted cradle of the heavens, will be created a new super race, a race of perfect physical specimens. You have been selected as its progenitors, like gods. Your offspring will return to earth and shape it in their image. You have all served in humble capacities in my terrestrial empire. Your seed, like yourselves, will pay deference to the ultimate dynasty which I alone have created. From their first day on earth, they will be able to look up and know that there is law and order in the heavens. Welcome everybody to AB Live. Yes, it is a world where men have nipples, but it's a hunk of hunk of burning gnosis every time you arrive at the virtual Alexandria. And always excited on this, especially on this Monday, Lunis, Day of the Moon, as we will be talking a lot about the moon. Welcome everybody to AM Byte. I am still Miguel Connor, your pompadus of gnosis and uh, that madman across the waters of creation. With us, as always, it's good to have the myth, the man, my friend, Jason Reza Giorgiani. Jason, how are you? And thanks for coming on. Not bad, Miguel. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you in any case. In any case, yes, here we oh, are in the okay. desert. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when doing, I... Good to see you. Hello, Vance. How are you? Hey. Good to see you too, Jason. Yes, as Emil Shioran said, I get corrected if I say Shioran. He said, uh, we are all at the bottom of hell where every second is a miracle. So we do the best we can here in the on the dark side of the moon, even though, as a matter of fact, it's all dark. And yes, I told myself that I would not under any circumstances, quote Christopher Cross's uh, theme of Arthur. If you get caught, I'm not even going to say it because it's so, so corny, and uh, I don't even want to talk about Arthur. Such a, such a weird movie that sort of glorifies alcoholism. It was great when I was a kid, and obviously Liza Minnelli. Dudley Moore and the great Sir John Gilgood were quite a cast, but so I'm going to stay away from Christopher Cross tonight. I'll try. How about the movie Moon? That's one of my favorites. I don't know if you've seen that one. So science fiction. Mm, no. Moonraker, the James Bond. Oh, no, Moon. It's just called Moon. Are you talking about the one where uh, they have these? Uh, I don't want to give any plot spoilers for those who haven't seen it, but uh, they're mining helium three on the moon. Yeah, yeah. Let's just say very few people stationed up there. That one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. Not a bad film for a relatively low budget uh, production. It was good. Interesting. Well, my favorite moon film is going to be Iron Skies. It's still one of my favorite ones. <laughs> it's like Sharknado. You have to watch it once a year just to amuse yourself. So, uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of moon-themed books. So for the audience, again, we want to do a little AMA. This is your chance to ask Jason questions about his body of work. His book, uh, I enjoyed it, but uh, reading the book, of course, somebody who's read all of your books, I was like, oh, I remember this from, uh, 
from uh, Iranian Leviathan. I remember this from Prometheism. There's a lot of these ideas coming. Of course, I was saying myself, damn it, I wish we could get a Mazdakite uh, movement here in the United States because it just worked so well uh, back then in the, the during the Persian Empire if we could just get it to work again. But anyway, I'm getting uh, sidetracked. For the audience, uh, please super chat your questions. It can be as low as a dollar. It helps out because we already have more than 100 people in the chat. It's going to get more people are going to show up. So it's easier for Vance. It's hard when everybody's talking. So it's easy if you super chat so Vance can get to your question and pin it. And then we can ask Jason. So. So let's talk about your book, Jason, Artemis Unveiled. I would like to show the preview, if you don't mind me reading the uh, summary. Absolutely. Go ahead. All right. And then I shall do ye share screen. And then we'll talk about the contents of the book. Window, Chrome, yeah, I want the window. All right. All right. I have it here. Paste. In the year 2112, yeah, again, that's that Rush reference that we talked about last time, Admiral Hyrcanius recounts the vicissitudes of a tumultuous history that culminated in the victor of Prometheism over traditionalism. It includes a Third World War, a Second American Civil War, a coronal mass ejection, a pole shift, and other catastrophic catastrophe, sorry, that result in mass depopulation, deindustrialization, and the rise of a traditionalist world order led by China, Russia, and Islam under the banner of the United States. The destruction of the Anglo-American establishment leads to several revelations regarding crimes committed by the cabal in charge of the deep state. Meanwhile, a Promethean society with post-Islamic Iran as its bastion breaks away from the traditionalist world order and wages a titanic rebellion against the divas or Olympians, who disclose themselves in 2048 as the guardians and ancestors of humanity. We are presented with a detailed description of the science, technology, and society of this Promethean community, which eventually stretches from the Oort cloud and asteroid belt to the ocean depths of Earth and the reclaimed megalithic cities of Sidonia on Mars. There has been a spectral revolution and a profound transformation of consciousness that could be considered post-human. Part prediction, part revelation, and part aspiration. This is Georgiani's vision of a Promethean utopia being born from out of the flames of an apocalypse that unfolds throughout the 21st century. However, some will surely see it as a horrifically dystopian cautionary tale concerning things to come. Well, there you have it, Jason. What am I missing, or what else do you want to say about your the book? Oh, you're on, you're on mute, Jason. You're on mute. Sorry, I was going to say that it's a good thing you read that one. This version that wound up on the back of the book is a, probably a bit more truncated than the the one that i had originally sent you no Uh, no it's a good summary of the book so we can take that as our point of departure yeah and this one is different than your other ones because in this one it's more of a first person narration concerning the history the meta history all the different things there's no uh 
well, there's no action scenes. There's no dialogue. It's not a third person one like some of your other novels. I'll tell you, frankly, what it is. I mean, even though it is uh, sort of nominally um, framed as a novella, what it really is is a utopian philosophical text. Um, It's part prophecy or prediction of the future and part uh, utopian philosophical vision, sort of in the style of Plato's Republic or, um, you know, like H.G. Wells's The Shape of Things to Come. That's the type of text that it is. It uh, uses predictions over the course of the next, let's say, quarter of a century from 2025 to 2050 to set the stage for the presentation of a philosophical vision of a utopian Promethean society. So my, uh, you know, more tangible, more crystallized vision of what I would actually consider uh, an ideal but practicable Promethean society is set in the context of the catastrophes that unfold between now and say 2050 that take apart the modern world. And that's an important setup because otherwise, you know, people, people would immediately react by saying, look, this is insane. We would never have a society like this. I mean, how do you envisage, envisage us getting from where we are today to a world that's been so radically restructured? And my argument in the book, or rather, the, I mean, the case that I make is, well, the modern world is going to be torn apart anyhow. And I show the various convergent factors that are going to essentially, uh, you know, wreck the, the form of society that we have and plunge us into a, a dynamic chaos that could much more conceivably be reshaped into this Promethean society that I envision. Oh, indeed. It's uh, it's not an easy read any of your books because it's so it's both cosmic, it's uh, Terran, it's uh, history that's happening on different dimensions. It's history that's happening back and forth in time with these power players. It makes you feel so small and makes you feel bad because, as you say, Jay, as we see, we know a lot of people die with these machinations of these terrible beings and the solution for revolution just means more deaths, unfortunately, more destructions of civilization and all that. It's it's a hard read, but it's important. It's important to know the truth and the veils to be open and have all our cards on the table. So... But in your in your world, so the audience can know the bad guys, the archons, who's the good guys and who's the bad guy. The good guys are those who have embraced the Promethean spirit, that of the trickster, that of the inner fire of the human being. Uh, I'm assuming those also deal with the trickster, these alien interdimensional tricksters, the for these John Keel beings. Who are the bad guys? So. This will be familiar to anyone who's read Closer Encounters, uh, where I empirically make the case uh, for the world situation that I describe in a much more concise manner in Artemis Unveiled. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to look at empirical evidence for what I'm about to uh, describe, look at Closer Encounters, which really goes into this in depth and detail. Essentially, what I show in this novella in Artemis Unveiled is how a a group of self-styled gods who have time traveling capability and who have uh, 
attempted to socially engineer human societies really from the dawn of time, uh, they are conspiring to create a series of convergent catastrophes that are going to deindustrialize the planet and basically put us in an incredibly weakened, desperate, and submissive position before they then return and assert themselves as the guardians and ancestors of humanity, and before they're welcomed by the majority of Earth's population as the saviors that were promised in their respective religious scriptures. So uh, I, I basically argue that these Olympians, as I tend to call them, the Olympian gods, you know, uh, who can also be seen as the ancestors of Confucianism or the devas of Hinduism, that these archons, to put it in Gnostic language, they, they are basically inculcating us with a kind of Stockholm syndrome, where we are their hostages, we are their captives, and yet we're being set up through the engineering of these convergent catastrophes to welcome them as our saviors. Okay, so we run from our abuser into the arms of our abuser. And that's the situation that I'm describing. And these people are mainly based inside what turns out to be a hollow moon, an artificial space station, although they have bases underwater and, and in other places inside mountains and so forth. But round about the year 2048, after a series of convergent catastrophes, everything from the Third World War, a simultaneous Second American Civil War, to uh, long-term effects, let's say, of the COVID pandemic, to a variety of catastrophes that appear natural, such as earthquakes and tsunamis and so forth, but that might actually be caused by a new generation of weapons that we know exist, like harp or certain tectonic weaponry. And there's also a, a, a depiction in there of a uh, coronal mass ejection, a you know a solar storm on the scale at least of the Carrington event, mm -hmm. which. Uh, how unfortunately winds up hitting the Western hemisphere of the world and essentially uh, acts to deal a death blow to Western civilization in particular. Um, and so on the tail end of all these converging catastrophes, you have the reemergence into the public, into, into you know, the open of these uh, occulted ancestors, guardians or gods and they uh, essentially impose a traditionalist society on the world based on the so-called perennial philosophy and the convergence of all of the quote-unquote great world religions. And they do this, and we can get into this in detail you know, if you want to, but they do this under the banner of the United Nations. And believe it or not, a United Nations now led by China uh, which, you know, a lot of people would, would, would wince at that and say, look, I mean, the Chinese and the Russians, why would they want to even salvage the United Nations as an institution? It's been a Western-dominated institution. They're creating this supposed multipolar world, et cetera, et cetera. But <clears throat> I lay out what I think is a compelling vision of how the Third World War ends. And it very significantly involves France flipping over to the side of China and Russia. And France, consequently, also leveraging uh, 
basically their influence on how the new world order takes shape. And it's at the insistence of France that the whole thing remain under the umbrella of the United Nations and that China and Russia exercise their hegemony through that framework that still includes the French. Yeah, very interesting. So why don't we talk a little bit about, well, first, wanted to ask you also two and so the audience knows, especially if they're reading your book, the Olympians, they're, again, these archons, the world players, the controllers. Ah, oh, did I lose my... No, I didn't lose my camera. I saw a cat running by. Um, the These are the Olympians, but on the other side, you have the Ashuras and the Titans, right? These are the ones we should be sort of tapping into, imploring. These are the ones that really get us to who we are. Well, you know, I've always had an ambiguous... Uh, relationship to those entities or whatever you want to call them, those people, those folks, uh, <laughs> because you see, they tried. Uh, their uh, they, they they they've already attempted their vision of rebellion against mm -hmm. the Olympians, and it failed pretty catastrophically. I uh, you know lay out the case for this in Closer Encounters. And it's also included in the narrative of Artemis Unveiled that essentially these Ashuras, these Titans who are at battle with the Devas or the Olympian gods, they are um, the people who uh, basically, well, I don't want to say they were responsible for, but it's in the, in the uh, context of their struggle with the Olympians that we wound up having the Martian biosphere destroyed in a nuclear holocaust right, right. and so i think that the battle described in myths as the titanomachia which you also see in some of the hindu epics that the primordial battle of the gods and the titans that this took place on mars and it already destroyed the biosphere of an earth-like planet right. so, carl schwab is uh is in the chat if he's looking at it so is he really important, important visit no just kidding just showing that Sorry, go ahead. But what? Uh, but Atlantis, that was humans versus the Olympians. The, the Titans were nowhere to be seen at that, at that particular stage. Here's how I understand it. What Plato tells us, and I, I've described this all the way back to Prometheus and Atlas, my first book, and then I came back to it in Closer Encounters. Uh, what Plato tells us in Timaeus and Critias and also in another dialogue that's related that people often overlook, the, uh, the dialogue Cratylus, mm -hmm. is that certain of the divine beings broke with the program and mated with humans. And the Atlantean leadership were demigods. They were hybrids of gods and humans, which is actually what the word hero means in Greek. The word hero, its root is eros, and it's referring to the basically intercourse between gods and humans and the creation of a race of hybrids. These are exactly the same beings that we find in Genesis uh, and in the book of Enoch as, you know, the Nephilim, as right. the, the basically uh, products of uh, mating between the fallen angels, quote unquote, the rebel angels and humans. And so I would see those as the Ashuras. So Atlantis was an Ashura spawned civilization and in particular, one defined by the spirit of Prometheus and Atlas, Prometheus, the knowledge bringer, to put it in Judeo-Christian terms, Lucifer, and then Atlas, the king of Atlantis. 
And so you have, uh, you know, th this Ashuric impulse behind the rise of Atlantis, but it's not an entirely Ashuric or Titanic civilization. It's a civilization that, that ultimately, as, as uh, well, both Plato and Rudolf Steiner describe, became increasingly human, increasingly mortal in its genetic composition over time. Um, and so we're dealing there with kind of a, a, uh, an Ashura-inspired human rebellion against the devas, whereas the Titanomachia is a much more primordial story. It takes place much further back in the prehistoric past, and it's a battle between the titans themselves and the gods. And interestingly enough, by the way, and you know this is partly my ambiguity in terms of the, the Ashuras, in that battle, Prometheus sided with the gods. And so Prometheus is very unusual as, as a titan because he, he tries to, to, uh, to make these fellow titans see reason and to strategize properly in their battle against, um, you know, the gods. And they won't listen to him. They just want to use brute force. So he actually, and he can see, being the one who sees ahead, his name means forethought, he can see that this is not going to end well. So he sides with Zeus and he winds up getting a preferred place basically at the right hand of Zeus. This is a, essentially the same archetypal structure as the story of Lucifer as the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then later, of course, Prometheus turns on Zeus once he sees that he's a tyrannical bastard who wants to lord over this, uh, you know, poor race of beings. Meet the, he didn't meet foresee the new that. boss. Yeah, meet the new <laughs> boss, same as the old boss. That's right. So why is that important? Let me, let me philosophically underline why is that important. It's important because I'm not trying to advocate an Artemis unveil. People who read it will see this, that we go uh, worship some race of titans as opposed to some race of gods, or we become like underlings in a battle between titans and gods, or we become the proxies of the titans in their beef against the gods. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying that we should have a very guarded, cautious, self-interested relationship potentially with these beings who have a common enemy and certain capabilities. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, let's talk about the moon since it's so important. And that's how your book, at the beginning of your book, you basically uh, uh, slam the idea, the conventional narrative of the moon. Some examples, I think you said... Who was it? Some astronaut said that they could hear a hollow sound while they were up there. And he gives some evidence that the moon is, uh, well, not all it's cut out to be. Yeah, um, it's not a hollow sound. Uh, what, what happened is that um, uh, in Apollo 12 and in Apollo 13, there were uh, basically objects that were impacted against the moon, um, and there was a pre-positioned seismometer which returned signatures that indicated that the moon was largely hollow. Right. So, so in the first case, uh, in the first case, what was the date here? Um, yeah, 19 here. November, November of 1969. So in November of 1969, uh, Apollo 12's lander crashed into the surface of the moon and a pre-positioned seismometer uh, registered reverberations for about an hour. 
And then once uh, this, to say the least, raised eyebrows at NASA, they deliberately repeated this as a, as a formal test in Apollo 13, uh, where they crashed the third stage of the Saturn V launch vehicle into the moon. And uh, this object, which weighed 15 tons, um, it caused the moon to uh, basically ring for three hours, to ring like a hollow bell for three hours. This was April 14th, 1970. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, you know, a number of scientists have comment commented on this, including, by the way, of all people, Carl Sagan, before he became such a staunch skeptic. You know, Sagan's early work was interesting. He wrote uh, an early book on extraterrestrial intelligence with a Russian scientist, and he was a little more forthcoming in his early days. And he commented on this and said, well, this is frightening because a natural moon cannot be hollow that way. And uh, so this is one of the telltale signs that we're dealing with an artificial space station. But there are a number of others that are, frankly, um, equally disturbing. And one is that on the moon, no matter how wide the craters are, they're always only a certain depth, mm -hmm. right? So you would expect, like on Earth, if asteroid impacts or meteorites, whatever, are going to cause a crater to form, that the crater would be proportionally as deep as it is wide. And moreover, you'd expect the crater basin to be concave. Uh, but on the moon, you have only convex crater basins, which are all the more apparently convex, the wider the basin is, right? Mm -hmm. And these basins are all shallow. So just so I make sure I don't get this number wrong, I think it was something like, like yeah, okay, let me, let me give you some of these numbers because the devil's in the details here and the numbers are really actually quite astonishing. So you have... Um, None of these craters are more than five or six miles deep. So, for example, the Gagarin crater, the crater named after Yuri Gagarin, is 186 miles across, but less than four miles deep. Clavius hmm. is 146 miles in diameter, so it could fit the entire land area of Switzerland and Luxembourg in it. But the crater only goes three miles down at its greatest depth. So this is... Uh, problematic okay and then the fact that these crater basins all look like a contact lens right so what does that tell you it means that if whenever something is impacting with the moon an asteroid or whatever the ejecta is exposing a hard interior shell which has been covered by the regolith as if the regolith the, the moon dust and rock is astroturf right. There's one more very significant piece of evidence here, and that's um, that's these mass cons. There are places, mass con, mass concentration, presumed mass concentration. There are places on the moon where the gravity changes suddenly. Wow. Okay? And it's a problem for navigation, apparently. So when they're, when they're flying close to the moon, they have to account for these mass cons because otherwise they lose a spacecraft it might suddenly plummet to the surface of the moon. And what they think, is, they have these bizarre theories. First of all, 
there's no real evidence that there are volcanoes on the moon. But they've come up with some bizarre theory that like there's volcanic activity on the moon. And there because of the metallic uh, elemental composition of the magma that's dried, like somehow this metallic composition is causing a shift in gravity and some bullshit. OK. Uh, and so they call it a mass concentration, like like lumpy cookie dough or something like in the moon. And it's caused by volcanic activity for which there's no evidence other than something else, which can also be explained by the moon being a UFO base, namely uh, sighting about 500 sightings of lights dancing on the surface of the moon going back 300 years since the earliest astronomical observations of the moon. So going back to the 1700s, Astronomers looking at the moon have always seen lights moving around on the surface of the moon. And these, you know, dismissive so-called skeptics want to say that's evidence for volcanic activity on the moon, except that these lights fly in formation. And sometimes they fly specifically from one crater to another, and then they take off into space. So that's an interesting volcano. Yeah, very interesting. Very normal volcano. So anyway, to go back to the mass cons, uh, what I suggest this really is, is that there are either facilities under the surface of the moon that are emulating Earth-like gravity, and they're causing the gravitational distortion, or there are some, and uh, the reason I, I venture this other hypothesis is that these mass cons all turn out to be circular. They're all circular. Mm -hmm. So another possibility is, if it's a space station, there may be giant saucers embedded into the surface of the station as an evacuation protocol so that if they ever need to leave this thing precipitously, they can just basically, these saucers will peel off. Huge yeah. saucers, which are, they've got zero point energy drives running in them. And so they're causing a gravitational distortion when anything passes over them. That's another hypothesis. Now, how does that dovetail into the fact that the moon is always facing the Earth, and which they, you know, they quote unquote explain away by saying, well, the mass is lopsided, so therefore, you know, it's gravitational attraction. You think those saucers are deliberately controlling the moon? The moon is always facing that. the Earth. What is it's the same face always yeah, faces? Yeah. Always. Yes. Always. And, oh wow. Yeah. Well, so Gravitationally locked, they say. First oh, of all, yeah, they've a lot of scientists have commented on how unusual that is, and. I don't think it's the saucers doing that. I think that there's machinery inside the moon doing it because sure. this thing is, I mean, look, it has an incredibly stable orbit. And moreover, it acts as a stabilizer for the earth. The earth, we would have eight hour days without the moon. The earth would be spinning so fast that we would have eight hour days without the moon. Mm. The misalignment of the, uh, the celestial horizon from the ecliptic Right, this 23 degree misalignment of the equator of the Earth, if you extend it out into space, and then the, our orbital plane with the sun, that's caused by the gravitational effect of the moon on the Earth. And so the reason we have seasons is because of the moon. If we didn't have the moon, one side of our planet, you know, would always be like, you know, unseasonably hot. And like it, it, the condition, let's just say the conditions for the evolution of humanoid life would be much more adverse between the fact that we wouldn't have seasons and you'd have temperature extremes geographically on the planet and the fact that the planet would be spinning a lot faster. And 
so it seems like this uh, is a terraforming device. And I would suggest that the, the fact that it always has one face presented toward the earth is a, f a function that's being generated by the same machinery uh, that is responsible for this station acting as a terraforming device. The other benefit to having one side always face away from the earth is that they can build a goddamn city there, which is what they've done. <laughs> so um, Carl Wolf was a repairman who had a top secret clearance with the National Security Agency. He was an Air Force officer, but the NSA cleared him to come into an NSA facility in 1965. This is all in the disclosure project testimony that was amassed by Dr. Greer back in the days before he started to develop certain other ideas. <laughs> anyway, uh, back in the days when he was a pure researcher, let's say, um, among the testimony amassed by Greer was this excellent account given by Sar then Sergeant Carl Wolf, uh, working for the Air Force, who was cleared to go into an NSA facility in 1965, a few years before Apollo. And he was there to repair a photograph uh, processing machine, an image processing machine that was printing out mosaics of the dark side of the moon. Okay, mm -hmm. mosaic, mosaic photographs of the dark side of the moon. And what was coming off this machine in this classified facility, which, by the way, he said was full of scientists from all over the world. There were people of all kinds of nationalities there, and he couldn't figure out why the hell this would be the case. In 1965, in America, in an NSA facility, Japanese people, Indian people, you know, all kinds of people. And what is this mosaic showing? A city on the dark side of the moon that looks like, like megalithic architecture. He said it wasn't made of metal. It was made of some kind of artificial stone, stone that you could make giant buildings from out of. And he saw obelisks, he saw domed buildings, lots of polygonal buildings. Uh, and so, you know, it, this guy expected he was going to hear this on the evening news for years, and it never happened. And uh, we also have then the testimony of um, Ingo Swan, who I think Ingo Swan uh, mm -hmm. was tasked in 1975 by... Uh, well, you know, the thing is, he actually doesn't know who he was tasked by. He was working for SRI, who was contracted by the CIA, Stanford Research Institute, had a CIA contract to develop remote viewing, and he was working for them. But some other guy called Axelrod came and grabbed Swan from out of that unit and said that his mission took precedence, and he had a higher clearance, and he took blindfolded him, put him on a helicopter, took him to some underground facility somewhere and had him remote view the dark side of the moon. And I think that it's the photographs of the, of the type that Carl Wolf saw that now we're talking a decade later, right? They want a remote viewer to go look at what these photographs were showing. Wow. And Swan, does, and Swan doesn't know this, you know? He's blind to the target, the way that a remote viewer always is. So he starts describing this shit, and he's describing standing at ground level in a city on the dark side of the moon and there's roads going in every which direction and he sees saucers parked on the sides of craters and the most disturbing thing that swan reported was that these nordic people who live there use slave labor mm. they have large groups of believe it or not naked slaves 
mining the craters. Now, how that's possible, it suggests that there's an atmosphere. There's uh, some kind of dome or something over it. And these poor people live in like uh, ramshackle um, housing that's like created by putting a mesh over a crater. And they're all sort of herded in there like cattle. And they're using the slave labor on the moon. So these are the people who in my uh, novella, Artemis Unveiled, I depict as the Olympians, these sadistic, tyrannical overlords who, mm -hmm. despite the fact that slave labor is utterly unnecessary considering their level of technology. I mean, they could build like yeah. robots to robots. for them, right? They, for some reason, they, uh, they like to, maybe it's penal servitude. I don't know. In any case. But the slaves are hybrids, right? They're not humans. Uh, well, these particular entities, now in my novel. In your I novel, there it's a hybrid factory or whatever you want In to my novel, I talk about a number of things. First of all, I talk about how the gray robots, these biomechanical grays, which have been seen with the Nordics by a number of abductees, how they're manufactured on the moon. And so inside the moon, there's like a gray production line. All right. The grays are being rolled off the assembly line in there. Mm -hmm. Little munchkins who work for these Nordics. Oompa Loompas. <laughs> yeah. Oompa Loompas. And then you have also all kinds of bizarre hybridization experiments going on inside the moon that they're genetic laboratories and so forth that I, you know, describe in there. Uh, but what Swan saw were human slaves mm. working in craters on the surface of the moon, like chain gangs in the old days, you know, like the naked slave laborers in Rome. Right. That is, yeah, that is really grim, especially, uh, well, both the, the hybrids and for those of you who might have watched the latest Guardians of the Galaxy, there's these themes about evolution and moon and all that other stuff. I guess the question is, Jason, why did we pretend to go to the moon in 69 or did we go? Well, we can leave that off the table if you want that debate. And that's a twofold. And are, why are we trying to go to the moon with rocket call Artemis, ironically talking? I mean, the elite know this. It's not like, why are they playing this uh, dog and pony show? So here's what I think about that. And I, I briefly do touch on this in Artemis Unveiled when I talk about President Kennedy. Because, um, okay, let me just take a, make a, a, a side detour and I'll come back to why did we go to the moon in Apollo, okay? But side mm -hmm. detour... Um, part of what I show in this novella is how, because of these convergent catastrophes, the security apparatus of the Anglo-American world is shattered, right? What we call the deep state. And it's a five eyes deep state. It's not an American deep state. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's the Anglosphere, basically, right? America, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they're all part of the same thing. And so I show how this Anglospheric deep state is shattered by these converging catastrophes, including their loss in the Third World War, a second American civil war, and so forth. Right. And so what winds up happening is there isn't, it's not like there's an official disclosure, but it's that these people who had security oaths to the CIA, the NSA, are suddenly de facto released from their security oaths because those agencies don't exist anymore. The federal government that ran those agencies has collapsed. And the United States doesn't control like Australia, New Zealand and so forth the way that it used to or have the kind of influence it had in Canada. China has instead. So 
all these people who worked in these institutions, generals, admirals, high-level intelligence officers, they're released from their security oaths in like, let's say the Republic of Cascadia where they now live, or you know, the, uh, the Neo-Confederacy, or uh, the California Republic that's a sovereign nation. And they come out and basically testify to things that they had kept secret for years, which include, you know, what really happened with the Kennedy assassination, hmm. 9-11, and some other things. And these disclosures in and of themselves are catastrophic. So this is a second wave of catastrophe. The physical catastrophes, war, you know, uh, earth changes and so forth, bring about a social catastrophe, which comes from these disclosures and further causes the unraveling of the social fabric worldwide, especially in the West, though. And so one of the things that I touch on to go back to why did we go to the moon and Apollo is that I think the main reason, you know, JFK, I don't want to say he made a lot of enemies because he was standing up against the right people. But uh, the main reason why, despite the fact that he, he didn't have a lot of friends, the main reason why he was assassinated, in my view, is because he had a plan to go to the moon with the Soviet Union because he had been briefed that these bastards are up there and he was going to openly and publicly unite with the Soviet Union in a common struggle against these entities, potentially using our nuclear weapons, the way that we had allied with the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany. And this is why he was killed, because the military was planning a private mostly secret military lunar expedition, which would lead to the establishment of a American military base on the moon, where we would then point our nuclear missiles down at the Soviet Union. Oh, it was Project called- Horizon. Yeah, Project Horizon. Yeah. And Kennedy put his foot down and said, absolutely not. No way. Not only are we not going to build a military base on the moon, aiming our missiles at the Soviets, we're going to go to the moon with the Soviet Union. And we're going to plant both the flags on the moon simultaneously. This is why I think they killed him and why they killed his brother, who would have continued that same mission. And so uh, why did we go to the moon as publicly as we did? Well, because, you know, the plan had been that we were going to ally with the communists in the common defense of humanity and the earth. Yeah, very Star Trek Generations kind of the movie. Or first, first, yeah, first thing was it first encounter or first contact? Yeah, but uh, and then since then we have not even tried to go to the moon, and now the suddenly we want to go to the moon, even though magically the rockets keep breaking, the Artemis keeps breaking down. Yeah, I don't think we want to go to the moon. I don't think we want to go to the moon. I think what the deal is is this that, and this is what I what I portray in my novella, in Artemis Unveiled, is that. Well, we haven't gone back to the moon because, I mean, first of all, the only reason we we completed Apollo was because Kennedy committed it, committed us to it publicly. OK, mm-hmm. once he made those speeches, there was no turning back. So we had to go up there. We had to collect some rocks and there had to be a photo op and so on and so forth. Okay? But if you listen to these astronauts, look at their faces, the faces of the Apollo astronauts when they came back in their press conferences, they look like somebody beat the shit out of them. They look, I mean, they do not look like well people. And, the, you know, their, their family members, their ex-wives, a lot of them went through divorces and so forth, have testified that they were, they were wrecks. They became alcoholics. They were depressed. Wow. And most interestingly, they had no memory 
of what they actually did on the moon. These people, when they're interviewed, what they recount to you sounds like a mission log, as if what they've been made to remember are the tasks that were specified for them. First, we did this, and then we went over there, and we did that. But if you confront them and say, no, but what did it feel like when you were standing in such and such place and you looked over such and such, uh, they, they don't look well when you ask them questions like that. Almost as if someone's gone in and found some way, either through drugs or whatever, hypnosis or some combination thereof, to erase their memories of what they actually experienced on the moon. Uh, and you know, then there's testimony from Russian intelligence that on the medical channel, which the astronauts used for basically, you know, private matters, communication with ground control on on medical issues and so forth. On this medical channel, which some, I think, uh, ham radio operators also picked up on, and the Russians definitely were monitoring, uh, Armstrong and others basically said to ground control, what are we going to do with these ships? They're huge. They're huge. They're here and they're watching us. Oh, my God. And so... It, they said they were warning us off. Their behavior was threatening or menacing in some way. Uh, so anyway, it's clear why did we didn't go back to the moon. <laughs> and, and by the way, why, why we had Apollo 17, 18, 19. These were all ready to go. The spacecraft were built. And all of a sudden, what? There's no budget for it? I mean, that's ridiculous. Some billions of dollars were already spent. Yeah. The spacecraft were already built. Uh, anyway. So, okay, and then we haven't been back in all these decades. Okay, so you so you believe we we went to the moon and you don't oh, yeah. you don't subscribe to Kubrick and the fake moon landing theory. Well, I'll tell you there's one thing about that that I do find compelling, which is that if you know you're going to run into some really weird shit up there that you can't disclose to the public, it's advisable to have alternate footage prepared. Yeah, yeah. So that you might create some hybrid of actual audio and stage footage so that you're not showing the saucers that are terrifying Armstrong and company to the American television watchers, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that makes some sense to me. Um, but no, I think we went to the moon uh, physically. And I don't think the United States wants to go back. I think that the United States has to go back because China and Russia have definite plans of, I was going to say colonizing the moon, but let's just say establishing a presence on the moon, okay? And see, this is what's really disturbing to me, because it's obvious that the Russians have a full intelligence dossier on what happened to us on the moon and what we found out. And if the Russians are building a space station around the moon together with the Chinese, which they are, they plan... Their plan is they're going to build a space station that orbits the moon, and they're going to send their astronauts from the space station down to the surface and back up again. That's the way they plan to do it. And if that's the level of space cooperation between the Chinese and the Russians on the moon, clearly the Russians have handed that dossier over to the Chinese. Moreover, the Chinese, given their culture, given their values, are not going to be humiliated on the moon the way that we were, okay? They are not going to go all the way up there just to, you know, uh, you know, be scared uh, and, and turn tail and come back to the earth, right? And waste billions of dollars of research and development. So what does this mean? This means the Chinese have gotten clearance to go to the moon, which means the Chinese are in cahoots with the people in the moon. Yeah, yeah. 
And so a lot can be extrapolated from this in terms of the shifting balance of power in the world and how basically the world order is going to be restructured toward collectivism, paternalism, traditionalism, and you know everything else that you can see as facets of the Confucian way of life uh, that sit very well with the most orthodox aspects of other quote-unquote great world religions like Hinduism or the Abrahamic faiths. No, makes sense, makes sense. Vince, uh, I have to let the cat out, uh, probably a Russian spy, but any super chats for Jason? Yeah, we got uh, we got one uh, from Esoteric Teachings, um, who says Madame Blavatsky, channeling the Tibetan, was told the moon was the original habitat of humanity. What are your thoughts? And he says, "Love your channel." I think there's something to that in the not the original habitat of humanity, but look, I mean Blavatsky, you know, she was a raw psychic. I mean, she just, you know, she was. Um, she was a medium in the classic sense. And right. I, I think she hit, she was a live wire who hit on a lot of things uh, relatively accurately. But, you know, her what she extrapolated from that, you know, what her analytical overlay, as the remote viewers put it, uh, on top of that raw data was, I think, um, might not have been as high fidelity. So so but I think Blavatsky was on to something in in so far as my hypothesis which I lay out in detail in Closer Encounters, is that the moon was used to transport uh, these superhuman people, whatever you want to call them, gods, titans, whatever, from Mars to Earth. So what I argue in Closer Encounters is that after Mars's biosphere was destroyed, uh, scouts were sent from Mars to Earth, and it was determined that... Earth was too volatile to be a place for the habitation of humanoid life. And the dinosaurs were still alive at that point. Oh. And by the way, I'm basing, this is not, I'm going to pull this out of my own head or whatever. This is based on Joe McMonigal remote viewing for the CIA in 1984 at the Monroe Institute. And he was among a number of people who remote viewed the destruction of humanoid civilization on Mars. And what he said was that those people scouted the Earth, but it was an Earth where there were constantly violent storms, volcanic eruptions, uh, a, a climate that did not suit human beings. And there was the problem of these gigantic beasts, namely the dinosaurs, okay, that we, we wouldn't be able to get along with very well. Uh, and so they caused the asteroid impact that was a death knell for the dinosaurs. And which, uh, together with this artificial satellite, terraformed the Earth into a place suitable for human habitation. And so what I think Blavatsky may be getting right is that the, the space station, what I call Artemis Station in, in the book, uh, this moon was populated by refugees from Mars who came to the earth. And so if Blavatsky describes it as, you know, the original home of humanity, well, yeah, I mean, the human race that subsequently populated the surface of the earth came from out of the moon and they were living inside the moon on their way from Mars to the earth. That's probably what I think she was, she was, you know, hitting on. Okay. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I see you. one. Uh, yeah, I love this auto thing that it auto pins, Vance. It's easier. Yeah, I know. Did you set that up? I no, oh, no. Yeah. It must be, it must be Streamyard. No, Auto Star <laughs> Super Chats. It's a switch. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to do another one, Miguel? Uh, got yeah, another... let's do another one. Yeah. And for everybody, yeah, if you have a, uh, please super chat them. I see a lot of questions, but again, everything's moving so fast. Uh, the the our, the our screen only catches the super chats now. Yeah. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry. For example, powdered toast man. Um, <laughs> I like powdered French toast. Um, Hoffmeister said, he says, reincarnation is a quote, natural gift, unquote. Does this mean you believe in higher power? Who do you think granted us this quote unquote gift? I don't think anyone granted us this gift, uh, if you want to call it a gift. Um, I think that it is a way to optimize personality development and basically the rendering of uh, conscious entities by storing experiences from prior um, embodiment in the world. I'm trying to carefully use words so I don't use words like physical, okay? Right. Uh, in other words, in other words, think about it this way. If you were designing a, a game, uh, it, one of these, you know, massive multiplayer online games, right? And <clears throat> you have a bunch of NPCs in that game, non-player characters who are sort of like part of the background of the game. <clears throat> but you also have uh, avatars for the game players. And in this game, it's possible to be killed. But, you know, like in all these games, going back to the original Nintendo, you have multiple lives, right? Now, wouldn't it make a lot more sense in terms of the continuity of personality of the avatar to store the memories from previous lives and have them be accessible, right? I mean, why would you, you'd be wasting memory and wasting processing power to have rendered all these memories and then just have them be discarded each time the avatar dies. No, you, you want to store that somewhere like in the cloud or whatever, yeah. right? And so I think that, and I've argued this in my previous books, in, in the ontological you know, sections of, of certain of my previous books, that our cosmos is a quantum computational system. It works like one of these massive multiplayer online games. And so it has certain optimization features, uh, which include storage of past life memories. Now, the bigger question to me, the more, the more perplexing problem, is why do we have such low fidelity recall of past lives? It, to me, the, the problem is not, you know, that we have memories of past lives, that people have these accounts, which have been studied, by the way, with great scientific rigor by individuals like Dr. Ian Stevenson, University of Virginia, 30 right. years, uh, you know, doctor of psychiatry, studied thousands of cases of young children who had spontaneous memories of past lives. To me, the, these are not the, the disturbing accounts. To me, what's disturbing is that the vast majority of people can't remember their past lives. Why is that? And I venture a hypothesis 
uh, empirically in Closer Encounters, and then as part of the narrative in Artemis Unveiled, that there is, to use the Soviet word for it, psychotronic machinery inside the moon, which has the capacity to cut into the bardo state, to cut into the transition between death and rebirth, what in the Tibetan tradition they call the bardo state, and to basically set up a soul trap for people. Okay, I, I make the case looking at the intersection of abduction reports and near-death experiences from the databases of Raymond Fowler and Kenneth Ring. Kenneth Ring wrote the Omega Project, um, and then Raymond Fowler did the whole series of books on the Andreasen affair, the case of Betty Andreasen Luca, the housewife who was abducted in the late 60s. And the databases of Dr. Uh, Fowler and um, Kenneth Ring essentially demonstrate that there's some very intimate connection between alien abductions and near-death experiences. And that the same kinds of entities are in many cases behind them. So for example, while someone's being abducted by some greys, they will encounter a dead person, a dead relative, who they didn't know was dead. <clears throat> And then a couple days after their abduction experience, they'll get a phone call from, you know, their aunt saying that Uncle Joe died. And the Greys showed, showed this guy Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe was with the Greys during the abduction experience. This has happened over and over again. There's other cases where people have NDEs and the beings that take them into a hellish realm or into a heavenly realm look like the Greys or the tall Nordics. In the case of Betty Andreessen, she was taken by a bunch of greys. And then these munchkins reported to the tall Nordics, who were the height of basketball players. They were these beautiful, blonde-haired angels. Actually, they said that they were the angels. They came right out and said that that's who they were. And they said the greys work for them. They're basically like robots. And what they are are the watchers. And they write down everyone's deeds during their life. I mean, this could be a quote out of the freaking Quran. This is what the Quran says. For each soul, there is a watcher right. writing down your deed. And so the, the Nordics explained to Betty Andreasen, we use them to transport souls and they record the deeds of souls. And here, look into this, into this doorway. That light back there is the light of God. And that light sent Jesus into the world. And he's coming back soon. Don't worry, he's coming back soon. And so, you know, okay, this is an abduction experience. Abduction to where? Heaven? Anyway, so um, I've argued in Closer Encounters, and I've recapitulated in this book, that this business about the tunnel of light, and this is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but look, <clears throat> this business about the tunnel of light, where people go into the light down this tunnel, and then they see dead relatives, or they see Jesus, or if they're Hindus, they see the Hindu gods. There's this one terrifying case of a Hindu who had an NDE and went to the Hindu hell, one of the hell realms, right? And this guy, Jatav, whatever, Singh or something, he, um, no, he wasn't, a, he wasn't, it wasn't Singh because he was a Hindu, not a Sikh. In any case, this Jatav character, 
he was being punished in hell by having his legs amputated. And then it was realized that there had been an administrative blunder, like out of a Kafka novel. Oh, no. They got the wrong guy. And they weren't supposed to cut this guy's legs off. It was supposed to be some other guy. Matter of fact, uh. they weren't supposed to bring this guy to hell at all. So then they have to they have to put Jatov's legs back on, and he has to go through a rack of amputated legs and pick out which ones are his so they can attach his legs. <laughs> like, here's the creepy thing, right? Meanwhile, this guy is dead in a hospital. This Jatov is actually, while he's having this NDE, right. he's dead in a hospital. When he suddenly comes back to life after a very long time of being flatlined, he has scars on his knees at exactly oh where God. his legs were supposedly amputated by the Hindu gods in hell. Okay, so what the hell's going on here? I mean, this suggests to me that there is a technology behind this. There is a spectral technology or a psychotronic uh, means of manipulating the transition between death and rebirth in a way that captures souls. And, and I think probably, let's just say, puts them in less than optimal conditions for rebirth. And part of that is what Plato depicted in Republic as drinking from the river of Lethe. Plato right. in Republic talks about how, you know, in the transition between death and rebirth, you're forced to drink from this river of forgetfulness, this, this water from this river that makes you forget your past life. And so I think they do something to us to degrade the fidelity of our past life memories. And that probably if we could find a way to throw a monkey wrench in this machinery, as I depict in Artemis Unveiled, we would probably have higher fidelity past life memories. It would probably still require, you know, some kind of work, uh, whether it's hypnotic regression or whatever other things. But I think we would generally have many more cases of spontaneous recall of past lives of the type that Ian Stevenson studied, you know, with all these uh, little children. How about not going into the light? You know, if you're having an NDE or whatever, or if you quote unquote think you're 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 dying and there's a light and it's come, come into the light. How about running you know, away from I'm the light? I'm really sticking my neck out by saying this, but I really recommend not going in there. I really recommend, you know, I would recommend that you have a very good idea of what you want to do next. You know, once you're once you leave uh, your present uh, form of embodiment. And uh, that you attempt to uh, basically remain true to your own will as consciously as possible and not be distracted or diverted from your own intent for your spiritual future, for the future of, of, of your uh, you know, soul and, and uh, for the further unfolding of your life's purpose, meaning your purpose across many incarnations no it makes yeah, sense and you. yeah for uh, for the audience uh we have uh, this week uh maja dao is going to talk about her ideas on archons and mind parasites and she talks about the entire other world world of the dead is a trap you have to stay away from the underworld it's not joseph campbell jung happy it's all bad, and we have to find a way out. And then we'll have Paul Levy talking about Wetiko. So it's going to be a week of intensity. And that story was amazing, uh, Jason. It just reminds me, yeah, Gurdjieff was right. We are food for the moon. And the whole universe really is like a Rick and Morty show, a Simpsons treehouse of horrors or Futurama. It's a disaster.
let me add one thing to that, Miguel, to make sure. it to, to, to uh, cause our audience to lose even more sleep. <laughs> and definitely their dinner. <laughs> oh, that for sure. Uh, look, these cases where, let's say, let's say there's a huge gap between someone's father dying and, and themselves passing away, right? Mm -hmm. And, or, or having an NDE, right? Like, like, let's say, you know, somebody's parents passed away 30 years ago. <clears throat> and then this person is now 70 years old himself and has a heart attack and almost dies. Well, they do flatline. They flatline for some time and they have an NDE. And the 70 year old, whose parents have been dead for 30 years, comes back and says, oh, after I went into the light, you know, mom and dad were there and, and they said the whole family was waiting for me. You know, look, we know from Stevenson's case studies that there's usually a very short gap between death and rebirth. There are some exceptions, but generally it's like between like two and eight years or something. It's, it's always less than a decade, almost always less than a decade, mm -hmm. and usually only a few years. Sometimes it's a few months. So this idea that the dead relatives are waiting for decades and decades to welcome you into the world beyond the light and all this, it's, it's bullshit, okay? That's mind manipulation. And look, you can give drugs to someone to cause them to go into a euphoric state. There's ways of of having bliss reinforcement that gets someone to buy into imagery that they're being shown for a manipulative purpose. And so I, I suggest that, you know, this is part of what the psychotronic imagery does, that it basically reaches into someone's memories and it produces images that are going to cause that person to surrender themselves to the, to the situation that's being created for them. Food for the moon. Is there anybody on our side? I mean, we got all these things after us. The we got tricksters, the Titans, uh, the Olympians. The I mean, they're tricksters, all tricksters. No, no, Where's the eons when you need them, you know? And there you have it. Wait until Jason tackles AI and how to get out of the reincarnation trap in our second part. The intensity only continues. Please support this Red Pill Cafeteria for the second part of Jason's interview, or if you find any value in the content. There are many ways to sub and many ways to support, and one will fit your needs or budget. If you need any help with any of these choices, just let me know. The alternative solution of the Gnostics is more critical than ever in this Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.